We have um, a ridiculous amount to do today. Um, Why are you laughing? It's only going to get worse. Are you laughing at the turkey? Well, that's not doing the ridiculous amount we have to do today. Okay, enjoy the turkey. Okay, now that you're done with your wild turkey, you're in the... There's a little joke there, but you're too young to understand it. It's about this alcohol thing, um, product of fermentation, wild turkey. It's a, yeah, okay. Um, all right. Uh, I hope you love the dead. Um, we have some more stuff to say about the aspirin papers, but, um, with res but we can, um, to some extent, put it in the context of the dead as well. So um, the first thing uh, to talk about a little bit, and this is something we'll be talking about in um, the aspirin papers, the dead, and also Mrs. Dalloway, is a little bit more about free and direct discourse. So remember that free indirect, lots of people um, end up on exams writing about free and direct discourse, um, which would be something entirely different. Free and direct discourse is what um, Trump opponents and Trump supporters say to each other. They speak freely <laughs> and directly to each other. I don't know if you've seen that on TV, but they do. Free indirect discourse is what um, um, is, again, the kind of narrative in which you generally get third-person narrative, but what the narrator is saying isn't necessarily true. And um, the, it's not um, false because the narrator is lying. It's not true because the narrator is narrating from a perspective which is a little bit like movie perspectives. If you um, watch movies carefully, one thing you may notice is you never actually get exact point of view shots of, from any character's point of view. Um, when you do, they're very, very unnerving. Um, if you just think of um, the standard thing that happens in movies, we'll talk about this when we get to film, but the standard thing that happens in movies and conversation is shot reverse shot, where two people are talking to each other and one person speaks and the other person is listening and then the second person speaks and the first person is listening and we're usually looking, not always, but usually looking at the, at the face of the person who's speaking. So we're watching someone speak but never from the exact point of view of the person that they're speaking to. Um, often over the shoulder, and we'll see the shoulder of the character, sometimes not over the shoulder, but actors never look straight at the camera. Um, if they do, it's completely unnerving because we know they're not seeing us, and yet they're looking straight at us. Um, so it's a standard feature of movie making, it's a standard feature of eavesdropping that we don't want to be looked at while we're listening to conversations that other people are having. Um, that, that moment when, you know the moment when meme, which is so awful, that moment when you're in a restaurant eavesdropping at the people at the next table and suddenly the person who's speaking looks right at you and keeps talking about how interesting, isn't it, the story they're telling is. Um, so if you have a whole lot of um, um, graciousness and, and um, coolness, you may be able to become best friends with them forever by um, turning it into a fun and wonderful joke. But generally that doesn't happen. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, so free indirect discourse is um, like looking over the shoulder of a character basically getting something, this is the most basic definition of, of its effect, 
basically getting something from the character's point of view, but it's not exactly the character's thought. We're not getting exactly what the character thinks or feels or says about this, but we can know what the character is thinking or feeling or saying um, by essentially um, getting the discourse of that character's imagination of the situation, even though that character is not imagining what we are. It's, it's more like how the character is imagining things without the character actually going through the process of imagining it explicitly. It's making explicit the character's imagination of a situation. Again, to say what this making explicit is in free and direct discourse, one thing, we're all very good at understanding it. It's not, what I'm trying to do here is, is to be clear on something that if we didn't understand immediately, um, fiction wouldn't be able to work with free and direct discourse. But to be clear about it and what it says about fiction um, is that we were talking earlier about first-person narratives and who the first-person narrator is speaking to in most first-person narratives. Um, we can distinguish a little bit um, more specifically between first-person narratives where what we're reading is a document in the world in which the narrator lives which older first-person narratives tend to be. That is, you will get, get first-person narratives which affect to be journals that a character has kept, or first-person narratives which are confessions. I've been arrested, and I've been instructed to give a confession, and now I will give my true confession. Here it is. Um, Beckett begins Malloy um, with a little joke about such first-person narratives, which is Malloy, the main character um, in the first half of Malloy, says, it begins, I'm in my mother's room, and then he says, um, in order to stay here, I have to write my experiences, and every day I write a little bit, and they come and pick up what I've written, so I'm going to start writing now, and he does. Um, the second part of Malloy is a different first-person narrator um, named Moran, who is a spy um, who is supposed to be Malloy's control, and he is now writing his report about how he lost control of Malloy. In both cases, those are documents that would be in the world that the narrator is describing. We're much more used now, and this is a more modern version of first-person narratives, which we're much more used to first-person narratives where we don't imagine what we're reading is a document in the world in which the narrator lives, um, in the narrator's fictional world. So again, distinguish between our world and a fictional world and, and consider that Sentences like this can end novels. You will get this frequently, for example, in hard-boiled detective novels, in Chandler and Hammett. Um, sentences like this can end a novel, or paragraphs like this can end a novel. Um, something like, um, I had finally figured out the truth, but I had sworn to Carmen that I would never tell anyone I regretted having sworn it, but um, it's part of um, the. It's part of what makes it possible to tell the good guys from the bad guys that the good guys have to keep their word. I told Carmen just before she died that I would never tell anyone what had happened, and that's a promise I intend to keep. The end. Now. 
if you're not saying, oh my god, my head is exploding, and none of you seem to be saying that, I don't know why, um, but if you're not saying that, it's because you don't see a contradiction between the fact that we have those words on the page in front of us and we're reading them, which means that the narrator has told us the very story that he tells us he would never tell. He's nevertheless told it to us in a detective novel of that sort. Um, the, the locus classicus, the best version of this, um, one of the greatest things ever written in detective fiction, is the pair of stories called The Big Knockover and $106,000 Blood Money by Dashiell Hammett. And I've given you a kind of simplified ending um, uh, to the second of those stories. They, they form a novella together. Um, they're two stories. They're each standalone. The second isn't really a standalone. It's a sequel to the first. And that um, novel kind of ends that way. Um, but the idea there is that we in our world have no trouble believing that what we've just read does not exist in the world that it's describing. We have no trouble believing that the narrator did not write down the things that we have just read. The fact that we've read them doesn't contradict the claim that they've never been written or never been told. Do you all agree with that? And I think the reason it's not, there's, there's an interesting exception to, um, to what is going to seem like a hard and fast rule. But the hard and fast rule seems to be that we are really, really good at telling the difference between fictional worlds and real worlds. And the fact that someone from a fictional world can communicate with us in our real world doesn't in any way blur the difference. Yes, someone in our world is telling us what happened in the fictional world. No, that doesn't mean that that person either lives in our world or that we live in the fictional world. There's somehow a, commu a communication over the gap between fictional world and our world, and that's simply something that we accept, and that we better accept because the whole idea of fiction is that we have access to another world without that access to another world, meaning that that world is somehow part of our world. It isn't. Um, and so one place where you can see this most vividly is in movies where the whole point about a movie is we are looking through a fourth wall at people who are, let's say, alone together. We see a couple, and they're having a really, really intense private conversation. And what we understand to be happening is that there are two people alone having a really, really intense private conversation. And we don't think to ourselves, whoa, why are they having this intense private conversation when there are 500 people in this multiplex watching them? Um, don't they know? But no, the point is they don't know, and it doesn't even occur to us that, um, that the fact that we can see them makes them any less alone. And that tells you something profound about the psychology of fiction. If you're, um, a, co if you're a major in um, neuroscience or cognitive science or any of that sort of thing, you should wonder why this can be. Um, this seems to be a strange and surprising fact about how the human mind processes at least some um, aspects of what comes to it from the world by way of narrative. Um, it's not something you would expect from first principles. Now, free and direct discourse works that way a little bit as well, which is to say that we are reading what a character would imagine, what a character imagines, um, but not explicitly. 
what a character imagines, but not by verbalizing, not propositionally, but what a character would imagine if you were to spell out what that character did imagine. But the narrator never says, here is what um, here is what um, Gabriel Conroy would have imagined if he were spelling out his thoughts. Um, rather, what we get is what he would imagine, what he does imagine, but what he imagines non-verbally. Um, sometimes verbally, often non-verbally. And we get a verbal explanation of that from his point of view, even though his point of view doesn't contain him thinking those thoughts explicitly. So it is making explicit his thoughts in a language that is his language, in words that are his words, in tones that are his tones, um, even though he's not doing any of those things. Yeah? What is the difference between free and direct discourse and third person omniscient? So the difference between th free and direct discourse is that you can have, again, to, to simplify an example, you can have a sentence like this. Um, it, it, detective fiction is always a really good place to go to for this. Science, science fiction also, but um, not as obviously. But in detective fiction, you can have something like um, he'd been... he. Well, now it's going to give you medical fiction, detective fiction. Um, he had he had been um, following this this um, trail pointlessly for the last twenty four hours. Um, he was exhausted, um, and it had come to nothing. Um, now he wouldn't be able to do anything for at least a week. Um, when the tall, which is when the tall man would return from Havana. Um, he went home and decided he would just take a shower. Uh, he went home to take a shower. Um, he lay down in bed. Now he'd get to sleep for 14 hours and not worry about anything. He closed his eyes and was immediately awakened by a knock on the door. He opened it, and there was the tall man. So the narrator has told us that the tall man is in Havana, playing basketball, um, that the tall man is in Havana and that he won't be back for a week. The narrator has told us that the detective or whoever he is was going to get 15 hours of sleep, and then the narrator directly contradicts that when the door, when there's a knock at the door and there he is. So one way to tell that you don't have an omniscient narrator or that the narrator um, whom we are most vividly aware of, because another thing about fiction is there's actually a nest of narrators in all fiction and there's never a single narrator. But one way to say that you don't have an omniscient narrator there is the narrator says things that are not true. And he's not lying. You wouldn't say, oh my god, the narrator lied to me. How can I believe anything about this, about this world? Well, you don't have to believe anything about it. It's false. It's not a true world. It's fiction. Um, but our reaction is not the narrator lied to me. Our reaction is the narrator was giving us a sense, a very strong and close sense of what the character believed. And the narrator does it in a way that um, doesn't, distinguish a whole lot
between what the character believes and what's going on. The really interesting thing about free indirect discourse, or one really interesting thing about free indirect discourse, is how much it how much of it is accurate and how much of it is wishful or hopeful or not or inaccurate. And therefore, it gives us a really nice way, it gives a, it gives a novelist, a storyteller, a really, really good way of moving in and out of a narrator's, of a character's point of view and the world that that character is looking at. So sometimes we get an accurate view of the world. Um, sometimes we get a less accurate view of the world. We never get an entirely inaccurate view of the world. You're not going to get free and direct discourse where a narrator thinks um, that she is flying a jet plane from, um, um, from Paris to Helsinki. Um, but in truth, although the narrative never tells us this, um, she's actually um, uh, spacing out in a classroom. Um, a great example of it is, um, talking about spacing out in classrooms, a great example that a lot of you will know um, is The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, um, which is a great example of um, a very simple free and direct discourse um, for the purpose of a joke. Do people know that story by James Thurber? Really, you don't. Isn't that sad? I'll just read you the first paragraph. Um, actually, someone, nah, I'll do it. What's the point of having all this fancy pants technology if you can't read the first paragraph of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty? Um, you'll recognize it, I think, immediately as something that you know about, um, even though you don't think you know about it. Um, let's see. Oh, there's an election going on. I didn't realize. Life of, do you guys know who James Thurber is? Really? That is, I can't tell you how sad that is. You do, Courtney, right? Yeah. Explain to, explain to these good people who James Thurber is while I get out the secret life of Walter Mitty. Oh, is there? Oh, so you guys do know. What movie? Oh, what? So why are you pretending you don't know? I just never saw the movie. Okay. It was also a movie... Um, I'm just looking for a PDF of it. Um, it was also a movie made with Danny Kaye a long time ago. No, I didn't realize there was. So Ben Stiller is playing Walter Mitty? He'll be great. So do you know what the movie's about? Yeah, no. yeah kind of. OK, go. Tell I mean, me. It's about a guy who's working, and he's bored with his life, and he has this huge imagination, and he decides to go out into the world and kind of pursue these adventures that he's been dreaming of. Yeah, so at least that's. So I don't know, this may be a spoiler alert, but so here's the first paragraph. We're going through! The commander's voice was like thin ice breaking. He wore his full dress uniform with a heavily braided white cap pulled down rakishly over one cold gray eye. We can't make it, sir. It's spoiling for a hurricane if you ask me. I'm not asking you, Lieutenant Berg, said the commander. Throw on the power lights. Rev her up to 8,500. We're going through. The sound, the pounding of the cylinders increased to pocket up, to pocket up, pocket up, pocket up, pocket up, pocket up. The commander stared at the ice forming on the pilot window. He walked over and twisted a row of complicated dials. Switch on number eight auxiliary, he shouted. Switch on number eight auxiliary, repeated Lieutenant Berg. Full strength at number three turret, shouted the commander. Full strength at number three turret. The crew, bending to their various tasks in the huge hurtling eight-engine Navy hydroplane, looked at each other and grinned. 
The old man'll get us through, they said one to another. The old man ain't afraid of hell. Not so fast. You're driving too fast, said Mrs. Mitty. What are you driving so fast for? Hmm, said Walter Mitty. He looked at his wife in the seat beside him with shocked astonishment. So he's driving his car, and this is what he's imagining. And you can partly tell that this is, it's very simple version of free and direct discourse, but you can tell that it's free and direct discourse um, on a second reading. When you get to moments like um, he walked over and twisted a row of complicated dials. Um, so that is uh, Walter Mitty imagining how good and competent he is at um, getting this eight-engine Navy hydroplane um, through the terrible stormy hurricane that he's getting it through um, because he's suddenly seeing it from the point of view of an audience who will think, whoa, look at all those complicated dials that Captain Mitty understands and I don't. Um, but the point is he doesn't understand them either. He's just imagining complicated dials. Whereas if you were really um, piloting a hydroplane, you would, you would know what those dials were. And all the other terms, you know, stuff like switch on number eight auxiliary, um, full strength of number three turret. You know, this is like BS early Star Trek terms, um, the original Star Trek. It's like, well, there's impulse power and there's walls power. And they were just making it up as they went along. And eventually they came up with some consistent definitions of them. But um, all of those things are fake technical terms um, which are always made up in science fiction. You have to make up um, fake technical terms. Um, and then if you are fantasizing about being a science fiction character, um, you will have to do that on the fly as you're doing it. So that's an example, a very, very simple example of free and direct discourse. The narrative is telling us something. It's not true. But the narrative is also giving us an orientation point to know what the truth is. Um, and the truth is that Walter Mitty is driving his car. One way we know about it, one way we know that Walter Mitty isn't a pilot who is suddenly facing death and imagines an earlier time when he was driving his car with his wife. You know, that could be the other way things go. But one way we know it isn't that is that he has several fantasies in the course of this story. And each time his wife breaks in um, and brings him back to reality. Um, it's not unlike the dead. That is, at the end of the dead, um, um, Gabriel is having all sorts of fantasies about his competence, about um, how well he handled the evening, about um, how much um, he and his wife love each other, he and Greta love each other, about um, what the possibilities of um, renewing a passionate sex life um, that very night in the snow. All of those are his fantasies, and they turn out to be very sadly, um, in some ways, Walter Mitty-esque fantasies. Um, he's wrong about what's going on. He's got a fantasy. There is a woman with him whom he doesn't understand, and he's imagining her as different from what she is, um, as more focused on him than she is. Um, that's to simplify a little bit too much what happens at the end of the dead. Um, but you don't go that far wrong by comparing um, the secret life of Walter Mitty to the wishful life of Gabriel Conroy. Um, and um, that is free and direct discourse lets you handle that. Free and direct discourse gets really, really interesting. It's Jane Austen who is most the inventor 
of it. It's not invented by anyone, but Jane Austen's novels um, are fantastically good um, innovations in free indirect discourse. Um, and things get really interesting when you don't know whether what you're being told is what a character thinks or what is actually going on. When you, and part of that is that in fiction, part of what's actually going on is that a character thinks something. And a char characters will evaluate things. This is true of the end of the dead as well. But if, um, what's the famous sentence in um, Pride and Prejudice about how that it would be worth it to be the mistress of um, Darcy's estate? Anyone remember the sentence exactly? At any rate, there is a sentence that, that Elizabeth, um, um, it begins a chapter, and Elizabeth Bennet um, says, well, to be mistress of this estate, it would be worth it. But she doesn't say it. That's simply the first sentence of the chapter, more or less. And the question is, would it be worth it? Is that her evaluation, or is it Jane Austen or Jane Austen's real narrator's evaluation? Does that, is that what Jane Austen thinks, or is it what Elizabeth Bennet thinks. Austin has just great, many of her climactic sentences are sentences where you can't tell whether she agrees with what she has just written or whether it's what a character thinks. And, um, some, and you as a reader have to decide which is which. Um, one more um, way to talk about, because this is, this is a way of talking about the interface of a fictional world with a real world. One more point to make about first-person narratives, that something a first-person narrative can't do, but free and direct discourse can do, is although we said that there's an absolute difference between a narrator in the world in which they exist as a character and the narrator in our world who is the storyteller in first-person narratives. Um, I'll give you one example, one way that James um, makes this vivid in the Aspirin Papers, this is something we talked about last week, is that we don't know the name of the narrator of the Aspirin Papers, and we also don't know the fake name of the narrator of the Aspirin Papers, the name that he tells um, Tina and Juliana is his real name, and he has cards printed up and claims that that's his real name. And then he says to, he tells Tina what his name actually is, and she prefers his real name to his fake name. From our point of view, they're the same thing, which is the null set. We, that name is never given. There is no set in the universe that contains either of the names of the narrator of the Aspirin Papers. So it's the null set, as we mathematicians say. Um, so we don't know the name of the narrator. And um, in a sense, what that means is there's nothing to know about that name. All we have to know is that he has a name, because he tells Tina what his name is, and also that he has a false name. Um, that, but that's all we have to know, what that name is. There's no place in the universe where the true name of the narrator, like the true name of God, is written. There is no true name of the narrator of the Aspirin Papers. But in the fictional universe, he has a name. So there what we have is one place where we can say, here is an anonymous narrator, um, and his anonymity... Um, is one of the ways 
that James has, and James does this a lot. There are other writers who do it too, but James does this a lot. One of the ways that James has of making clear the boundary between his world, that is the narrator's world, and our world. Because in the narrator's world, he has a name. In our world, he, does, he doesn't. Whereas Jane Eyre has a name both in her world and ours. We talk about Jane Eyre when we discuss that novel, just as characters in Jane Eyre talk about Jane Eyre when they're discussing her. So we talk about the events, and we say Jane does this, Jane does that, um, and so does Rochester. Um, however, we can only talk about the narrator of the Aspirin Papers, whereas no one in the Aspirin Papers is saying, oh, the narrator of the Aspirin Papers has gone off to the Lido for the day. Um, so that what James is doing, and this is, the, this is the bigger point, is distinguishing between a narrator and a character, even though in many, many novels they have the same name. So Jane Eyre is both narrator and character in Jane Eyre. What happens at the end of Jane Eyre, uh, reader, I married him, is that at that point, she has become almost purely the narrator. Um, that is, there's almost nothing left for us to know about her as a character once she says, reader, I married him. Um, and now all we're getting is Jane Eyre as narrator rather than Jane Eyre as character. Um, in the Continental, the Continental Op, this is the um, narrator of the um, Hammett stories I mentioned earlier, um, the big knockover and $106,000 blood money. The Continental Op is Hammett's most, he's, that's short for the Continental Operative. He is Hammett's most frequent detective. You may know of Sam Spade from the Maltese Falcon, um, but Sam Spade is really the narr narrator of only one, he's not even a narrator, he's the hero of one novel. Um, the Continental Op is a first person narrator, and he is the narrator of three novels and countless stories, and we never find out his name in all of Hammett. He is an anonymous narrator. There's something very interesting about anonymous narrators. We will come on another one later in this course um, when we read the therefore extremely appropriately named Invisible Man, whose narrator is also anonymous. There's something always interesting about the anonymity of a narrator because they are anonymous in our world but not in their own world. The greatest example of this is Proust's um, in Search of Lost Time, which I've mentioned before. It's a 3,300-page novel in which a narrator um, talks about his childhood and youth and um, sexual um, adventures, misadventures, um, erotic um, misery. Um, and it's quite, it's, for my money, the greatest thing ever written in any form, um, better than Shakespeare. And um, that narrator, you're reading the novel, and he talks about himself a lot. Um, famous first sentence, anyone know it? For a long time? Oh, yeah, wait. Yeah, that's right. For a long time, oh, yeah, wait. And then he stops oh, and... I went to bed early. Yes, good. For a long time, I went to bed early. Uh, famous first sentence. For a long time, I went to bed early. Virginia Woolf, um, in her, if you read her journals, you can read um, month after month and year after year about how she's reading Proust. Um, it took her a really long time uh, to read Proust, but she thought rightly that he was amazing. She hated Joyce, but she loved Proust. Um, so 
he begins, for a long time I went to bed early. He then goes back to his earliest memories in childhood. Uh, he famously eats a madeleine. Some of you may know that. He dunks a little tea cake into a cup of tea, and he has this limbic rush of memory that he then tries to describe. So you're reading and reading and reading, and he talks about himself, he talks about his mother, he talks about his father, and he talks about his grandmother. And then he talks about various other characters. Those characters are never named. Uh, mother, father, grandmother are never named in the course of the novel, nor is he. And about 2,500 pages into the novel, so you're making progress, um, he describes how his girlfriend, some of you who took the film class will know this from La Captive, how his girlfriend, who is his captive, more or less, um, she's living with him. And he describes how she would wake up in the morning. And he says sometimes um, she would wake up and look confused and forget where she was and look a little bit frightened. Um, but sometimes she would wake up with absolute clarity and limpidity and would open her eyes on me and say to me, my dear blank, my beloved blank. And then he adds, which, if one were to give the hero of this novel the same name as its author would have been my dear Marcel, my beloved Marcel. So that's like that moment in Jane Eyre where Jane, but is it Jane, says when you get to a new chapter in a novel, it's like a new scene on the stage. It's the place where the first person narrator is saying this is a novel and I am not the person that is the main character of the novel and who is saying I. So again, you could say that there's that distinction between the I of the character and the narrating I, who we almost always give the same name as the I of the character to. That is, we say Jane is the narrator of Jane Eyre. But when Jane says this is a novel, and look at me, when I say, look, behold me then, the me there is me, the character, not me, the narrator. And you can call Jane the narrator, but you don't have to, is the point of the Continental Opera, the point of Proust. And when Proust says this is a novel, and the hero doesn't necessarily have the same name as the author, because we never find out the hero's name, then we're realizing there's a distinction, like the distinction that we've already seen in, I, I swore that I wouldn't, I, I told Carmen I wouldn't tell anyone what happened and I never did, um, and I never will. That's a distinction between the I who told Carmen, who, who swore that he wouldn't do such a thing, and the I who is telling us the story. They're different eyes, and there's some continuity between them, because it's a first-person narrative, but there's a difference between them because one is an I in our world, the storyteller, and one is an I in the fictional world, the person to whom the events happen that the story is telling. Yeah, Hannah. Is the storytelling the narrator the same person, or also not necessarily? Well, so for, again, you will never go wrong by multiplying levels of narration. Um, there, there are many of them. But a first approximation is the storyteller is the narrator. 
Um, and that the difference between storyteller and narrator, I mean, ultimately the author is the storyteller. Um, but the difference between the narrator um, and the character is a large one. And it can be diminished very, very easily. Um, one reason that so many contemporary, um, so much contemporary fiction is written in, in the present tense rather than in the past tense is that does tend to diminish the difference between narrator and character for reasons that writers think they get more immediacy out of that. Jane Eyre is actually one of the first novels to do that when she says, here I am sitting in, um, um, in the train station and I have my shawl around me and so on. She does break into present tense narratives from time to time, but generally she's doing standard past tense. But if you just pick up a typical New Yorker story, now it'll be something like, um, I am sitting in my room waiting for my husband to come. He's late as usual. I notice a cockroach walking across the floor, and I think, what's happened to all those great pesticides that had rid the world of cockroaches? Um, I'm still thinking about this when my husband comes in. He says to me, Richard, what are you doing here? I've been waiting for you, etc." Um, so that kind of New Yorker first-person present tense narrative. In the 90s, this, uh, this got called um, the style of the yawn novelists. Yawn standing for young anomic, which means they feel adrift in the world. Young anomic white novelists. And you yawned when you read them. Um, so first-person um, present tense uh, narrative. Um, and that tends to minimize the difference between narrator and character. What maximizes the difference is when the narrator says, if I had the same name as the author, my name would be Marcel, um, but I don't know, um, but um, I'm just going <coughs> to leave it blank here. Then the person leaving it blank is the narrator, not the hero. The hero isn't saying, I wonder if I have the same name as the author of the novel in which I find myself. The hero can't think that thought. Um, but the narrator can, and that again tells you that the narrator is someone speaking to us even though he is, or she, in Proust it's he, is speaking for someone in the novel um, and is bridging what is otherwise a, a, an absolute gulf between the fictional world and the real world. Jeanette Winterston does something really interesting. Do you know what, I, what novel? Um, You're nodding. Is it written on the body? Yes. So describe it. No, go ahead. I no, no, just describe what she does. You knew <laughs> Wait, exactly I what I was going to say. No, I didn't. Go ahead, just in case I don't. <laughs> okay, in Written on the Body, Jeanette Winterson has a really amazing description of how to fold a parachute. Is that what you were going to say? No. No, because she doesn't. Okay, Written on the Body has a narrator whose name... Do we actually find out the narrator's name? No, you name? don't know the name of the gender. Yeah, so we, we, do, we don't know the name of the narrator, but not only that, we don't know the gender of the narrator. Um, so it's um, maybe or maybe not, um, it might or might not read differently um, if you read it twice and read it the first time assuming the narrator is a man and the second time assuming the narrator is a woman. Um, the reason that matters though is that the gender of the narrator matters to the plot rather than, um, and it doesn't matter nearly as much to the voice, to the person telling us the story and saying I, generally we don't tend quite to gender 
the narrating narrator as opposed to the narrated narrator. The narrated narrator is gendered much more. The na and, and gendered um, given a race, given an age, and so on. Um, there's a famous Charles Wilford novel. Um, I think it's called Killer in the Rain, but now I'm not sure. Um, where we find out only in the very last sentence of the narrative, um, the narrator, um, it, it's a kind of detective novel. It takes place in San Francisco in the 50s. Um, the narrator is um, interacting with um, a typical type of character um, or various different characters. And um, being a novel from the 1950s and not knowing anything about Charles Williford, and um, we make assumptions about the character who is telling us the story. And we find out in the very last sentence of the novel that he's black. And we didn't know that until then. Um, so that's a spoiler for you. Uh, and it's meant to be a spoiler. Um, it's not a random fact. It's a really important fact for the novel. Um, so finding things out about the character, one way that that can happen is that we actually don't think of the person telling the story with the kind of specifics that we think of the character who might also be the same person, but who's a character rather than a narrator. The difference between them really, really matters. Um, but the one exception to this rule, which I think you all know is an exception, is that we can count, with vanishingly rare exceptions, we can count on a narrator of a novel where what we're reading does not exist in the world that it's describing. We can count on the narrator surviving. That is, it feels like the worst cheat possible if at the end of a novel, the narrator says, um, and then he pulled a gun on me and shot me dead, the end. Um, and if you read that, you, you feel gypped, unless there's some way that you can make sense of it, like with American Beauty or Sunset Boulevard. Um, you feel gypped because you think the fact that the narrator is telling the story the one thing that the narrator shares, and shares it through the pronoun I, with the character is that the character survives. That the character continues to be an I long enough to tell us the entire story. That the character cannot die in the story. That's not true in a journal. What you can have in a journal, for example, is, and now I'm alone, drifting through space on this space station um, with no fuel and far, far away from Saul and um, from any possible aid. And so I think it's time for me to take the cyanide that they gave me in case of this, and I'm just going to write this last sentence, farewell. And then that, a narrative can end that way, and you don't think to yourself, wait a second, how could he die? Because you know how he could die. He wrote, you know something he did in the novel, which is he wrote the word farewell. But in another novel, like at Swim Tubers, which also ends with the word farewell, um, or which does end, <laughs> the other one I just made up, um, at Swim Tubers, which does, it actually ends with the word goodbye. Um, there, the narrator is telling us goodbye, but it's not a word that he's written in his world. So the act of writing can be an action in a fictional world, 
but it doesn't have to be an action in a fictional world, even if we're reading what the narrator has written. It doesn't mean that he's done that, or she. So these are all ways of seeing that there is this difference or interface. But free and direct discourse is probably the most complex and most interesting version of that interface. For one thing, free and direct discourse can do something that um, first-person narratives generally can't, which is it can give you a very close perspective on more than one character. If you're reading a first-person narrative, um, then what you're reading is, I did this, and I saw him, and I saw her, and I saw them, and I saw the other guy, and et cetera, but it's always the perspective of one character. Free indirect discourse can shift perspectives, and you'll see in Mrs. Dalloway um, that Wolf, who is the greatest writer free indirect discourse ever, um, she does that all the time. One of the things to be paying attention to in Wolf are the ways in which we go from one character to another, um, where the free and direct discourse takes us from one character to another, um, sometimes mid-sentence. And um, she is so ridiculously good at what she does um, that the only time we're confused about whose perspective it is is a time when she wants to disorient us for a second or two. Um, but she's amazingly good at what she was. But to take an example from The Dead, um, the first sentence of The Dead, anyone remember it, famous first sentence? Mrs. Dalloway is going to echo that first sentence in its first sentence. Do you remember? Was. Digame. Next word is the really important one. Lily, the caretaker's daughter. Anyone? Don't look, but do you remember? <laughs> Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally run off her feet. That is, she's exhausted by um, all the preparations for this party and everything that's going on in the party. Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally run off her feet. What's wrong with that sentence? Yeah, it's not literal. This is one of those things that English teachers are always saying, no, not literally, figuratively, not literally. Um, Ambrose Bierson, his great book, The Devil's Dictionary. Do you guys know the distinction between literally and figuratively? Is this something that has been pounded at you and you don't care? You literally couldn't give a shit? <laughs> um, so Ambrose Bierce, in his great, great book, The Devil's Dictionary, which I strongly and highly recommend to you, um, Ambrose, they're just fantastically wonderful definitions of everything. Like his definition of, of dice is small polka-dotted cubes of ivory constructed like a lawyer to lie on any side, but commonly the wrong one. Um, a diplomat is someone who is um, someone who's developed the art of lying for his country. Um, actually, his definition of, of the letter I is great. Um, it begins, I is the um, uh, first letter of the English alphabet, the first word, the first thought of the mind, and the first word of the language. So his point being that we're all egotistical. Um, his definition of bore is someone who is talking when we wish to be talking. Um, so um, his definition of literally is literally, adverb, figuratively. <laughs> As in, the ground was literally alive with snakes, or I literally took his head off. Um, so 
Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally run off her feet. That's not Joyce saying that she was literally run off her feet. Who's saying it? Who feels that way? It's a perfect example of FID, as we professionals call it, free and direct discourse. So who thinks that? Whose complaint is that? It's hers. But where is the caretaker's daughter coming from? Does she go around saying, I am Lily, the caretaker's daughter. I am Lily, the caretaker's daughter. It's a, it's a really amazing first sentence, even though it's so deceptively simple, because the identification of Lily as the caretaker's daughter, if you just follow her as a character, that's not how she wants to be identified. She doesn't think, I am Lily, the caretaker's daughter. Um, she has her own problems and her own issues, which Gabriel notices. So why Lily, the caretaker's daughter? Where does that phrase come from? Does it come from an omniscient narrator telling us who she is? Yeah. Well, he hasn't seen her yet, but yes, it may. So one thing that Joyce does, just to give you an example of, of just his, his amazing subtlety of touch, is by saying Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally run off her feet. With the word literally, we know it's free and direct discourse, or that Joyce is a moron, and Joyce is not a moron. So we know it's free and direct discourse. Um, when we get to that, by the way, the, the book that this comes from, Dubliners, the first three stories in Dubliners are first person, and then everything else is third person, but they form a kind of novel that goes from first to third person, and the first person narrator is anonymous. Okay, just one minute. So Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally run off her feet. Then a couple of paragraphs later, we get Lily, the caretaker's daughter, and she does something else. So he makes sure to repeat that phrase. So it's not... Joyce telling you Lily is the caretaker's daughter and now we go into free indirect discourse. It's that what you're getting is the free indirect discourse of how everyone else thinks about Lily, Gabriel and others. That is, they look at Lily and that's Lily the caretaker's daughter. And then we immediately morph into her point of view from the general point of view of everyone else in the party. There's Lily the caretaker's daughter. We now morph into her point of view with the word literally was literally run off her feet. Then a little bit later on, Lily, the caretaker's daughter, opened the door. And so Joyce, just in that deceptively simple first sentence, if you understand that first sentence, you'll understand free and direct discourse. Shifts from one point of view to another in the course of four words in an utterly simple and utterly subtle way. Okay, read Mrs. Dalloway for Wednesday. Oh, it's early days. I could have kept you another minute late. Oh, well. <laughs>